OFS, I'm Doug Shapiro. This is the Imagine a Place podcast, where we explore the power of place and the role of design in our lives. I love wondering about the far out future. I love hearing what other people think about it. I love books about it, movies about it, and I'm pretty sure I annoy my family with this sometimes too. But today, I get to sit with a futurist, so I know he'll appreciate this curiosity I have. We go deep on the metaverse, on design, AI, and work life. Mark Bryan is my featured guest today. He's the Director of Innovation and Research at M&A Architects, and of course, also, he's a certified futurist. Now, a couple days before my call with Mark, put out a help request on LinkedIn and Instagram for some questions that you, the listener, might want to ask a futurist. I got a bunch of good ones, ones that I ask here on this interview. So thank you to those who sent in those questions. All right, jump into the time machine with me and let's go. Well, you're you're in our industry. Uh, you're connected to our world. Uh, you're also a certified futurist. Can you tell me how you become a certified futurist? So my background is in design, um, but about six or seven years ago, just started transitioning to doing a lot of more research for uh, MA Architects, my company, and really working on bringing the evidence-based principles into our designs, making sure that our clients know what the ROI was for some of the design decisions that they were making. And so I found an organization, um, it's called the Institute for the Future out in Palo Alto, California, and went and took their training. And my, I was just blown away um, because the process is a lot of what we do in design. You know, especially mm. you think about our programming process where we're doing a lot of digging into our clients, what their needs are, what their history is, um, what the needs of their consumers are. And so I took the learnings I got there and then found a way to implement it into our design process here at MA. And uh, since then, have been doing forecasts for clients ranging from healthcare to retail and to some of our community projects, too, and work nice. exercise. Having been formally schooled in thinking ahead, what would be a common misperception about trying to judge the future? I think a lot of times people actually think a little short-sighted. I think they sometimes underestimate technology. Mm. I think that you sometimes get trapped in what's happening today. You know, it just in the design profession, we get trapped in trends where we're trying to always level set and benchmark ourselves against our competitors uh, or just the industry as a whole. And so I think sometimes people don't do enough of scanning of what's causing change outside of our industry. And so part of the foresight practice is looking outside of the topic that you are studying. So if I'm looking at a healthcare project, I'm looking at fashion. I'm looking at art. I'm also looking at technology. It's not just focusing in on the subset that you're working in. And I mean, that's research in general, right? What you want to be doing is looking at the broader picture, figuring out where the gap is in the research that needs to be done. Um, and so I think that sometimes is where people get trapped is that they just get stuck in the here and now and they don't allow themselves to break their own bias of saying, okay, everybody else is saying this as opposed to listening to that inner voice inside of them that 
would allow them to uh, embrace change. Well, I, I, I love the, uh, the background you've given us there and the context for which maybe you'll approach these questions now. And okay. uh, I kind of want to be selfish and I want to ask mine first before I dig into uh, the ones that were, uh, were tossed out to me. Um, here's my question. Here's what I would ask a futurist. So let's say you know the future for a career in design. What would be the next two to three big skills that I should be developing over the next five to 10 years? Um, I would say uh, ways to translate human emotion into a physical experience, whether that's through experiential design or whether that is through another activation. Um, and then I would also say just uh, coding and gamification, some kind of technology um, application. The first one is just because I really do see the future of our industry as a responsible service experience platform, where what we're doing is we're providing services that provide experiences. Because I think we can all create wonderful spaces, and hopefully we are creating spaces that use evidence-based principles that help us to um, create better human interaction and better human livelihood. But it's the experiences that are really going to be tying people together. I think as we are living in this asynchronous way now, this hybrid, this remote, this um, surviving as we can, just still making it through, it's the experiences that bind us together. And so I think understanding human emotion and using that to translate into design is going to be a powerful tool that is going to resonate very well. Um, you know, we've got our experiential design team and I talk to them all the time about it's about the emotion. That's the foundation of what the experience wants to be that connects to the story, to the narrative. And then the second part of that is just technology. I think that, you know, being able to program that into something that is a digital application, whether it's an app, whether it is an online experience, whether it's an immersive experience, whether it is in the metaverse. Um, I am a huge proponent of the metaverse. Uh, I do think it's got some amazing potentials as we think about what it can do for our industry specifically. Um, but then also just gaming. Um, you know, we saw during the pandemic the rise of gaming and how that actually created social communities and how it's becoming much more widely accepted by parents for their children as a way for children to be developing new skill sets. And so I think that those are two defining skills as designers we should be cultivating. Uh, I totally see the connection, especially with the gamification that you, you pulled out there. Um, you said you were a huge proponent of the metaverse. Mm -hmm. Let's actually, let's break metaverse down. How do you describe the metaverse? How do you define it? And then let's back into why we should be paying more attention and trying to understand it better. So uh, the the term uh, or the phrase that I've been using is it's like Sims on steroids. Um, Sims. Right? I mean, yeah. we, uh, I'm dating myself here, but I mean, oh, I guess I'm, Sims I'm is still you. around, right? Yeah. Uh, but I mean, in essence, you're creating your own virtual world. And so that can be accessed through, um, I think there's four main platforms right now, Meta being one of them that people are probably most familiar with. Um, and so they're kind of separate entities. It's like the internet before uh, the internet became connected and became the World Wide Web. And so right now what people are doing is they are building these immersive environments for people to be able to go and have um, a 3D experience. And so you're literally placing yourself in an avatar inside a different world. 
Uh, one thing you should know is that right now, most avatars don't have legs. Some of them do. And their premise is because you're not truly walking in the metaverse. Uh, so if you see the avatars and they're floating and it's just from the waist up, that's generally where it is right now. Um, what's really intriguing to me is that I've been seeing companies who have gone completely in the metaverse. Um, they mm. are hosting meetings in the meta metaverse. They had Christmas parties in the metaverse. They are um, just facilitating design and innovation in the metaverse. And what I think is really intriguing to think about is a lot of our clients um, are hesitant right now. And that's one of the main reasons is that I love being a futurist is I help them move from that uncertainty into action and mm. translate that into a way that they feel comfortable with that by pre-experiencing their future space. I personally am really hoping that what we'll be able to do is take some of these concepts that we have that we want to study, like our respite room, put it out in a large uh, open format where people can come in, experience it, tell us what works and what doesn't. So we're basically doing a research project on a space before it's even built. I mean, is the nature of place just going to be completely turned on its end? Like, how far out are we from a moment where I spend more than 25% of my day in the metaverse? My waking would, day. Your waking day. Well, and that's the other interesting part that I am really interested about is is what happens when your avatar is an AI that can learn the skill sets that you need during the day while you're sleeping. Um, so oh, wow. okay. there's lots of, you know, this is, this is part, this is why my brain just, it, it, it loves being a futurist because you take all those uh, disaggregated items and put them together. But to answer your question, you know, the metaverse is still very conceptual. And what I will say is that historically people have tried to do the metaverse before. The difference being here and now is the adaptation or the adoption of the virtual world that is already in play that we didn't have in previous attempts. So I still think we're probably five to 10 years out from that, but I think uh, it's going to take one innovation and then it'll skyrocket. And mm -hmm. then it really becomes a matter of using it how it makes most sense for you. A lot of people get scared about, well, virtual is bad and we're not going to really connect. Well, to an extent, maybe that's true for some people, but for other people who are introverts who may be on the neurodiverse spectrum, they might actually be able to engage in society in a more meaningful way than they do in the physical world. And so I think the, the term that I always use um, is fidgetal, you know, the blending of the physical and the digital world. So I think um, you, I, in my mind, you're waking up in the morning and you're checking in on your avatar to have them tell you where you're going to work that day, your avatar is telling you what the workplace might look like during that day. So your avatar is becoming a tool. And that's why mm. we talk about AI, artificial intelligence, but I really do think of it, about it more in terms of augmented intelligence, where it's helping your life versus replacing something altogether. I see that where, where there's, a, there's this element of kind of human intuition and creativity that is augmented by this mm -hmm. intelligence. I'm feeling that. I'm understanding what you're saying there. My question is, is space going to be more precious, physical space, or less precious? And the reason I'm asking is, you know, let's say I don't love the home I'm in, okay? And, well, maybe I don't care that I don't love the home I'm in because I could just go to the home that I built that's perfect for me in the metaverse. And I walk out and there's woods in my backyard instead of a road and cars flying by, right? And, and it's like, so does that mean I will settle for spaces or places that 
don't fulfill me because I can I can become whole in the metaverse or or because I spend less time in real space does real space then become kind of more precious and more important and I kind of wonder like which direction will we feel about real place so what comes to mind to me is that we as human beings crave social connection and we really do crave new experiences. What also comes to mind is that we know as we expose people to more new ideation and things that are different from them, it actually creates change in the brain that allows you to be more innovative, more open, more accepting of different divergent thinking. Um, what also comes to my brain is just the thought about equity and how that might be an ability to provide equitable experiences. So to wrap that all up into a bow, what I would say is that I think in the short run, we're going to see people who maybe have some kind of a, a an issue, whether that is being on the neurodiverse spectrum, and I don't even like to say that's an issue, but just it's a state of being um, that might be make it more friendly to them, more um, approachable for them to be able to be in the virtual world. My hope is that what we'll be able to do is to translate the virtual world in a manner that allows people to experience new things and then makes them want to try them in the physical world as too. So they work in tandem mm. with each other. And that really pairs with that idea of a digital twin. So digital twins are a very hot topic when you talk to healthcare systems right now or when you talk to even in warehouse system, industrial projects right now, because they're able to mimic what's happening in the physical world down to the supply chain having an issue, and then they can test what would need to happen in order to be prepared for that. And so I think when we think about offering the digital twin of a concert, I think that opens us up to a whole realm of possibilities. My basic premise is that I'm hopeful that what will happen is that people will be able to use the metaverse to enjoy the physical space even more. I, I like that. And it, it almost paints a picture similar to how you painted artificial intelligence, where it's we're, we're augmenting our mm -hmm. intelligence almost the same way that that place will be augmented by the metaverse, not necessarily replaced by it. I agree. That's what I, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm feeling that. I want to jump into some questions now. Okay. And uh, so this first one is um, from Jeff Plost. Hey, Mark. I'd like to ask you about what past trends or reimagined ones you think might cycle back into the future workplace. Basically, what do you think was working that might come back even stronger? So, Jeff, I think what I would say is the idea of privacy is something that never really left um, but that has always been a continual evolution um, throughout time, especially as we've gone from high cubicles to open office to now um, some kind of like hybrid, whether it's agile. And I think that privacy linked to ownership of space is, is really interesting to think about where it, in past we were able to say that we own this space, we've earned this space. And so is there a way that those... Um, 
smaller spaces allow you to still have that ownership and access to it. Um, I do think that those communal spaces are a continual trend that will continue to be pushed forward. Most interestingly, I'm really curious about what the role of lobbies is going to play in the future of our workplaces and whether or not they become something different um, or they go back to the more traditional formal role where right now I think lobbies have become a little bit of a pass-through space, but I think that they could interestingly become something where um, they do become more of that formal greet and start the experience um, mm. in a much more um, meaningful manner where the values of the company and the culture of the company are demonstrated. I could definitely see a more meaningful start mm -hmm. to every day, you know, almost like there's some, I mean, there's some great habits we could build out of that just by asking questions and understanding your day and your schedule and kind of setting intention there's some things that are more kind of like spiritual in nature, nature. And then there's some things that are just more textbook, you know, but either way, so much opportunity there. Um, I wonder, as you described place and privacy, do you think high, if, if, if we're working in um, the metaverse, going back to the metaverse, <laughs> do, you, do you think hierarchy goes away? I mean, does like everyone get a corner office? Well, this is where it goes back to equity. So out of the, the justice, equity, uh, diversity, and inclusion, equity is one that um, I, I hearken most to um, because it's about the access. And mm -hmm. so right now what we know is that not everybody has the same access to just even the internet. And so I think we have to be very cautious about um, creating things like that where everybody has got a corner office in the metaverse. Well, that's great, but if I don't have access to the internet, now I don't have a corner office in the metaverse or in the physical space as well, too. And so I think it, it'll be great if we can allow for that to occur. What I see more happening from a privacy standpoint is being able to display a private collection that you might not be able to display in the office. So maybe some of those bobbleheads finally go away that we've all been uh, cringing <laughs> about as we've walked around and toured those workspaces. Um, but it allows a personalization to occur. And I think I'd like to think about it more about personalization um, and that privacy mm -hmm. allows us to uh, show our true selves. And then we get, to we get to decide who we're showing that to versus it just continually being on display. Okay, I like that. All right, so here's one from Laura Guido Clark. Hi, Mark. Prior to COVID, much was discussed about our work-life balance. And I wonder how you see the convergence of these two vital forces in the post-pandemic world. Thank you. Uh, well, Laura, I am a huge supporter of mental health. Um, I think that work-life balance and mental health go hand in hand. And so I think that in a um, re-emerging world, I don't like the, the return to normal personally, but in a re-emerging world where people are starting to redefine their boundaries, I think that people are going to want to have the ability to say, okay, here's what works for me. I've learned a lot about myself during the pandemic and I want to be able to continue this going forward. And I think a lot of companies should be open and responsive to that. Um, and a lot of this plays into the fact, I used that word asynchronous earlier, where we are living in a time where we're not doing things in the traditional nine to five. We're not following the same patterns that we had before. And we all got our work done for the most part, I'm guessing. Um, but I think what employers need to be aware of is that based off of that, based off of people being able to get the work done, 
our traditional thought of containing them to, again, uh, a binary choice of being in work or out of work is not going to occur. So what I think employers need to do is be setting up those regimented breaks, those mindfulness moments throughout the day that require an employee to take a break for their mental health. Research actually mm. shows that taking a break makes you more productive and less likely to make a mistake. And so I think if your employers are not engaging in this right now, they might need to consider what their culture actually looks like, uh, because I am guessing that they might have a little bit of a toxic culture syndrome right now. Toxic culture syndrome. Okay, that's the first I had actually heard those three words put together, but toxic culture, I certainly have. But, but I guess the syndrome implies that there's something rooted here, you know, mm -hmm. that needs to be dealt with. It's not just a person or a thing, but it's reoccurring. Okay, and uh, here's a good one. This is from uh, Jessica Lankhorst. Hey, Mark. My question is, how do you think designing new future virtual environments will differ from the current built environment? Since you're only designing for two senses, how do you successfully plan for that? Well, Jessica, I don't think you're only designing for two senses. I think mm -hmm. that you will be able to design for multiple senses. I actually think of the metaverse as almost a additional sense, something that is going to be added to our sense vocabulary. Um, in that, yes, right now you can do sight and you can do sound. Um, haptic is happening um, where they do have bodysuits and they do have gloves and they do have other accoutrements that allows you to feel somebody else touching you. Um, Taste and smell are get a little bit trickier, but that's where I think it's exciting because you're able to then redefine what smell looks like, what, what taste looks like. I mean, McDonald's is creating a metaverse cheeseburger. So clearly they have something up their sleeve of what that looks like. And I think that's also where we're underestimating technology to be able to provide something through our Oculus that allows us to smell something, that allows us to have that um, taste experience too. So Yes, right now, the devices may only allow for a certain number of senses, but I think that in the future, they're going to allow for all of them. And I think what's really great about that is that then we can start to think about um, an immersive space in a truly different manner. So an immersive space right now, as you walk into a, a built environment that encloses you, um, but in the metaverse, the enclosure doesn't need to happen because it's just everywhere. So you're going through a walking journey of immersive sensory experiences um, that can link to a value, that could link to um, mm. a culture. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Wow. And it's amazing to think about that. And, uh, you know, I, even this this idea of an additional sense is kind of cool to think about. I just hope it's not motion sickness. That's the only <laughs> sense I hope it's not because I struggle there. That is fair. And I mean, and that is something that would need to be addressed because right now there is a certain percentage of the population that does get motion sickness from the Oculus. And so that is something that is to be overcome. My biggest thing is that when you get to those places where you say, well, we can't do this because of whatever that wall looks like, that's the point where you really need to um, step back, take a look at what's happening in the other industries around you, and then use that as data points in order to figure out how to be, make it a solution versus a stopping point. I, I like that. Okay, this one. This is from Chris Stolpen. Hey, Mark, it's Chris Stolpen, and here's my question for you. Is the idea of permanent employees and careers becoming arcane? Thank you. Honestly, Chris, uh, to an extent, yes. Uh, and here's my reasoning why. Is that I think when you look at higher education, 
what we're finding is a lot of people are wanting more of a apprenticeship approach, a choose your own adventure approach, where they want to be able to come out of higher education with a specific skill set, a specific mastery versus a generalized degree. And if we take that as a signal of something that's causing change, I think they're going to want that in the workplace, especially as when you start to couple it with gig work, right? Where people are doing more individualized, ta individualized tasks versus a, um, a career path or they're in a job. I think that you're going to start to see people think about work more in terms of the specific tasks versus the roles that they're going after. So instead of hiring for a project manager, you're hiring for somebody who is your good note taker or somebody who can do your uh, detailing and feeding into the process that way. Um, Unilever a couple years ago actually uh, has the phrase where they moved from owning talent to accessing talent. And I think that's another critical signal to think about where they don't offer, uh, or at least through that program, they didn't offer permanent jobs. What they said is that, okay, we need to do fulfill this specific um, task for a certain amount of time, and then we'll reevaluate your uh, next level. I also think what you're seeing is a lot of people who are upskilling and reskilling themselves right now, where they are learning because of the pandemic, what I'm doing right now doesn't bring me any joy, or I don't find value in it, or I don't believe in it anymore. And so I want to reskill myself into a completely different role. And a lot of companies are terrified of this because they're mm. losing employees. And so what we're seeing is a lot of companies who want to provide that reskilling in-house or upskilling if they do want to move, progress into a career pathway. So Again, we're seeing a lot of talk about skill sets right now. And so I think it's going to be interesting to think about. Um, I actually created a forecast uh, for an IIDA event about where you go to these skilling touch points where you put in your skills that you have, it recognize, or it recognizes your skills, and then it tells you what to do that day, what job to go perform that day. Um, because there was also another data point from Accenture that talked about how they found that I think it was in six month period, they could reskill someone. Something from, uh, I think it was a warehouse uh, position to a marketing position just under six months by knowing what skills went within that role. So I wow. do think that um, there will be some permanency, I promise you. But I just don't think that every employee is going to be a permanent employee. And, and I think there, I mean, I'm really intrigued by this. And I think there are also some like innate skills. And it's kind of interesting. I almost feel like I, I have this visual in my mind as you're speaking of like, you know, the, the human and this chart, you know, like of how are we utilizing human capital mm -hmm. and this idea that like more broadly, we can get more utilization out of people for what they're great at, you know, like what that could lead to in terms of progress and invention. And, you know, this is really interesting to imagine uh, versus, you know, people being maybe stuck in roles or situations where they're they themselves are underutilized tremendously in many cases. When you were describing more focus on task-oriented jobs that become less central to the company, but things central to like the main idea of a company, but things that you can outsource and connect to. And I think it's almost like a, a reversal of what's been, because if you think about it, in many ways, people were outsourcing creative, mm -hmm. right? They would like go find it like, oh, this is, we need something super creative. Like we need to go outside and, you know, and we, you know, they would go to creative firms. And I almost wonder if like the opposite is going to happen where it's like 
creative becomes something maybe that you need to internalize more. And, and then you, the, the things that you used to hold on to, you let go of. I actually love that a lot um, because there's actually studies out there that show that creativity is on a decline. And mm. so I think if we think about what you just said in terms of reprioritizing the work where the creatives become um, the essential workers, that would bolster a lot of desire to be able to foster creativity in new and meaningful ways. Cool, cool. I can see it. Okay, um, here's one from Catherine Minervini. Hi, Mark. How can companies create a future workforce that balances emerging young professionals and experienced seasoned professionals? Absolutely. Uh, I think it's actually essential because um, we're all living longer. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure most of the people that I talk to these days talk about retirement much differently than what my parents talked about it, what my grandparents talked about it. Mm. They talk about it as a continual evolution. Uh, there have been terms out there called the graying of the workforce um, and how they need to uh, appeal to still our baby boomer generation who don't want to retire, our Gen Xers don't want to retire. So I think you can. I think it's, again, about recognizing skill sets where you are allowing people to continually to learn. You are fostering social connection and in enabling communication in a um, proper way. Okay, cool. Um, all right, I saved some of the big questions oh, gosh. For, uh, for the end here. This one's from Shuli Steele. Hi, Mark. I'm most curious if futurists see a path to greater trust amongst nations and if this could possibly lead to collective solutions, such as eliminating hunger, uh, the end of war, valuing education, increasing civility, and maybe even raising social justice. Yeah, you really did leave one of the big ones for the end there. Um, I think there is plenty of opportunity. I think there are plenty of things that need to be fixed in order for it to occur. I think that a lot of the problems come down to communication in my mind. It's my personal mm. opinion and how we um, often misunderstand or misrepresent ourselves. We misunderstand others and misrepresent ourselves. And so I think we need to redefine language in a way that allows for trust to be built. And perhaps one of the signals we can look at is what a lot of retailers are doing and companies are doing right now, where they are providing a systemic transparency with their communication. They are being vulnerable and saying, here is where we are today. Here's where we'd like to be. And here are some of the mistakes that we've made along the way. That is building trust with the consumers and with employees right now. Um, I also do wonder where blockchain does fit into this. You know, if, if blockchain mm -hmm. is an immutable source that we can trust as a ledger, is there a way to have dialogue through blockchain where it doesn't get, um, it, it's not the telephone effect, right? Where somebody said this and then it slightly oh, yeah. changes and it slightly like changes and it slightly changes. And, yeah. Exactly. So I do wonder if blockchain is a way to help, help build healthy, honest communication um, and even a community too. Um, I also Ooh. do wonder if we think about the senses, um, what are ways that the metaverse could help build trust with each other too? Um, as long as it's an equ equitably accessed. So I haven't seen specific signals about a worldwide trust other than 
those that I just mentioned, but I think there is some interesting parlay between those that could offer us a potential hopeful future in that manner. The the idea of communication, I think I'm really vibing with. And I think the idea of authentic, transparent communication is key. Authentic in the very literal sense of like, it's been authenticated through the blockchain. Right, exactly. And I, I feel like there's this sort of subject of informational health mm. that mm. could be paramount like to that. making that happen. I like that a lot. Yes, yes. And I've recently interviewed a, a gentleman named uh, Mario, and he is the founder of Readocracy. And uh, I'd say, hey, look up Readocracy. Really cool company doing some neat things with informational health. All right. One big last question. This is from Reagan Donahue. Hi, Mark. Reagan Donahue here with Unispace. My question is, what would be the purpose of humans moving forward if we are truly successful in replacing our jobs with robotics and artificial intelligence and machine learning? Social connection and well-being, honestly and truly. So if we automate everything, really what you're saying is that everything has become a commodity because at that point, mm. uh, it's all equally accessible. And I think this goes back to something I said earlier about the future of design, where in my mind, it's about creating experiences. And I don't think that there's really a robotic or AI way that currently that could um, offer an experience in a storytelling manner. And so I think what's going to be really important in that kind of a future is to be thinking about the narratives that we create that connect us to each other, that tell our shared history, that allow us to have a deeper understanding of what somebody else is going through um, mm. and maybe using those shared experiences to bind us together. I'm feeling that. You know, when you described commoditization and auto, you know, this idea of everything being automated, I was like, I don't know why this came to me, but I wrote great comedy as one mm. of our as one of our reasons, you know, yeah. for just being human. Well, and I think, you know, when you think about foresight, you think about it in terms of like, okay, if a system were to completely collapse, what would that mean for different industries? And I think that's kind of what Reagan's question is getting to, is that in a world that no longer creates something new, perhaps, or no longer facilitates the production that allows for creativity to thrive in a different way, um, it would really allow for us as designers to be able to create something that has the purpose and meaning that we've always wanted to. I think it also, like, just think about all the cross collaborations that have happened because of the pandemic, prior to the pandemic, where you're seeing brands coming together to form new types of products. How cool would it be where you could have cross collaborations across the world mm. through an app that would allow you to, hey, I'm interested in sneakers and oranges and hummingbirds. <laughs> and you've got a group all of a sudden that you can start to put in your ideas and then the automation takes it from there and builds that product that you are able to create. So, Oh, that's wild. I think there could be some fun and playful ways, again, as long as it doesn't control us, as long as it doesn't become um, something that is inequitable for people to have access to. So I want to ask a personal question too, because I can feel the importance that equity has in everything you're saying. 
I can feel a personal connection to it in a way. And of course, it should be important to all of us. But why specifically you? Is, is, there, is there something inside of you or inside your story that connects you to this subject in a more specific way? I mean, so I am part of the LGBTQ population. And I think for the longest time, I didn't feel like I had uh, equitable health care. You know, especially when I was growing up, the um, uh, H scare of HIV and AIDS, uh, you know, not being able to care for myself if something, uh, if I were to contract uh, that. Um, I think there was also the inequitable of being able to express who I am, uh, being able to love the person who I want to love. Um, I think there's a large part of that. I would also see there's a lot of inequity in our design profession, where there's a lot of times that you were told you are not ready, you are not um, creative enough to take on this this task or this role or this uh, this project right now. Um, and so I think that just throughout my adult life, I've had to overcome the um, you can't do this because of X, Y, and Z. And so I think the reason that equity resonates so well for me is because I do want everybody to have access and I think it's possible. I just think we need to relinquish leadership and control in a manner that is very unfamiliar to um, a lot of the people in leadership right now. They are holding on to what they know. And we talked about biases at the very beginning and why people can't think about the future. It's because they're used to their standard practices because they've proven true. The opportunity lies in that we're in such a great inflection point in history right now where we get to redefine what humanity looks like. And I think starting off with making it um, equally accessible to all would be a great place to start. I love it. Makes total sense. And uh, I see the connection. And I'm so glad you spent this time with me. Like I, I really am. You're enjoyable. You're so thoughtful and uh, so darn intelligent. <laughs> it's a real treasure to have you on. Thank you, Doug. I had a pleasure. And I actually appreciate those questions. I was a little nervous. I'm not going to lie. But um, <laughs> I think those are some really great, insightful questions. And I think that they're ones that a lot of people are asking right now. So just thanks for having me on. Absolutely. If you enjoyed today's episode, we would really appreciate a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. To discover more design stories, visit us at ofs.com slash imagine a place. From OFS, I'm Doug Shapiro, and you've been listening to Imagine a Place. Imagine a Place.